2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10. And the last part of it says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And this, while you're finding the text, uh, it reminds me of my father this last couple days before he died in the hospital. And the family was asked, is he a retired preacher? And we had to say, no, he's a retired logger. <laughs> but anyway, that reminded me of him. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be ashamed, nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about myself, except I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will, no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surprisingly great revelations there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why... For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, I guess I'll start by telling you my story because then I will tell it and then I won't have to say it again and again on how this happened. <laughs> Um, the Wednesday of camp meeting, my tooth broke. And so I wanted to be sure that it wasn't something really serious, so I decided to come home and see my dentist. And it was during that string of 90-degree days that we never seemed to have in Washington, but there were a few of them in a row. And so while I was home in swim, I thought I would just go water my garden because I was home anyway. I set my sprinkler on the outer fringes where the lovely irrigation system that Mark has put in doesn't quite reach the corners. And I, I was worried about the plants in the corners. And while it was watering, I was very happily pulling thistles and deadheading with one eye on my watch because I wanted to beat the Tacoma traffic and be in Auburn by late afternoon, ready to do my work that evening. 
And I grabbed the sprinkler without turning it off. You know how you do that? You just grab it and then you hold it out so you don't soak yourself. And I was heading across that upper part of my garden to set that sprinkler one last time and then I would have to go to work. Well, our hillside is made of clay and wet clay is slippery. And I know this all too well because I have fallen on that hill more times than I can count already. But every time I've fallen in the past, I've fallen backwards and I've just ended up coated with mud and with a bruised backside. But this time, because I was holding that sprinkler, I fell forward. And as I fell forward onto myself, my right ankle caught the weight of my body and I heard the crack. And then I felt the searing pain, and I tried to crawl down my hill on my hands and knees, but I didn't make it very far. So I'm just laying there crying, thankful, praise God, thank you, thank you, that Amy had not gone to work at security systems yet. She was still in the house, and eventually she would come out to go to work, and then she would help me. And just a few minutes later, she appeared at the front door because I had a phone call. And I yelled for help, and she put down the phone, and she went to get the wheelbarrow, and I had a ride. <laughs> By that evening, I was scheduled for orthopedic surgery, nine screws and a plate. And the doctor gave me the bad news. Six weeks without bearing weight, nine weeks without driving, lots of physical therapy, and a very slow healing. He said it would be a year really, before I would walk without pain. And the scariest part of the whole equation is that I am on a medication to try to keep my breast cancer at bay that is making my bones and teeth weak. And so there is this realization that this is only one of potentially many, many broken bones. And I have only begun this process. And for the first time in my life, I feel fragile. I've never, even through all the breast cancer stuff last year, I did not feel fragile. Now I just feel like, oh, please don't let me fall anywhere, anytime. And I think it's God has his way of putting pieces together because two years ago, our small group studied Laura Story's book, When God Doesn't Fix It. And in that book, she challenges us that when hard and bad things happen, not to ask why, but to ask how. Instead of saying, God, why did you let this happen to me? It's summer. It is when my garden will be growing like crazy and there will be so much to do. Instead, I need to say, Lord, how can you use this pain? How can you use my fragile state to turn me into a woman who walks by faith and not by sight? How can I give you honor in this state that I find myself in? And that is just a wonderful question. And I love Laura's story. I've already told her story to you before. But this whole idea that no matter what you find in your life, to ask God, how can I honor you? How can I honor you now 
being like I am. Well, I am incredibly sleepy. One of you told me that I looked more rested. And it's because I have slept for two weeks. <laughs> Basically, I just take a little nap whenever I feel like it, and I sleep all night. And I'm cutting my pain pills in thirds because I really don't want to just sleep away these weeks. I want to actually accomplish something. But somehow, I just need to keep resting. And I know many of you take unscheduled naps at inopportune times because I see you in church. <laughs> All the time. I mean, it's just part of pastoring in squim. It's, there's a lot of you that take unscheduled naps. You just close your eyes and you rest. And you know, I am really understanding that better than I ever have before. And maybe that's part of what God had planned is for me to understand the people that I serve that have a hard time getting around and need to nap often, better than I ever have before. I have this pile of professional books on leadership and building teams and all this, and I really do want to do this scripture memory thing because I somehow have never taken the time, and I feel like I'm not with the program and that somebody's going to notice that. And I need to memorize something. But I just want to sleep. That's all I want to do. I just want to sleep. And I want to color in my little art journaling Bible. And I want to watch the ship sail by. And I thank the Lord for the view. That where I sit, I can just see from the top of the world. And so when I ask God what he wants from me, how can I honor you on this day when I can do absolutely nothing? Not even get myself a drink. God's answer is pretty firm. For 14 days in a row or more now, he's just said, rest. That's all. Just rest. And when you're ready for the next step, I'll tell you what to do. How does it feel to just be told to rest? The King James in Psalm 23, verse 2 reads, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He maketh me. He's the subject, I'm the object. I'm like a toddler on the verge of a tantrum whose daddy tells her it's nap time and it's not negotiable. He maketh me to sit down in my little yellow recliner and elevate my feet. He maketh me. And I don't like that. Because I want to be strong, and I want to be busy, and I want to be about the Lord's work. And here I sit, day after day. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, The Lord is like a father to his children. He is tender and compassionate on those who fear him. You know, he does not scold us when we are not strong. He understands it. Don't take an exaggerated view of what the Lord expects from you. When you're tired, he wants you to rest. He will not blame you for not doing what is beyond your mental power or your physical strength. He doesn't think less of us when we need to take those unscheduled naps. Psalm 103.14, I loved this psalm. 
this verse for a long time. It says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now that's King James. The New Living Translation says, for he knows how weak we are. He knows how weak we are. And that is my good news of the morning. And if you go home and that's all you remember, that he knows how weak you are. He understands that. That's all you need to know, really. That we serve a father who is tender and compassionate when we are weak. So... We don't have to pretend and we don't have to just summon up our courage to tell God we're strong when we're really not. It's okay to be weak in his presence. And the very last verse of our scripture, um, 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, When I am weak, then I am strong. And in reality, from God's perspective, it's not when I am weak. Because we as human beings are always mortal and we are always weak. It's not when, it's like this is who I am is weak. Is there ever a time when even the strongest Christian is not weak in the presence of God with, compared to his strength? But there are certain seasons in our lives where we are more conscious of our weakness and others. And there's sometimes no way to hide it. I cannot climb those stairs by myself. And so Mark mercifully put me up here before you all came to watch. Because it's not pretty. He's got to push on me because I can't do the hopping to actually get up here. It didn't help that on my way after my surgery, on my way home, I had Amy with me. And I tried to climb my stairs with my crutches and fell backwards on the cement in my, off my front porch. So that kind of has made me now afraid of stairs. So I don't know if it's physically I can't do it or emotionally I can't do it, but I'm just not doing scares without Mark back there pushing on my behind. But he did that before you watched. There are certain seasons when we know that we are weak. And when you know that you're weak, that's when you really need to know that God is strong. And that, those two things are about all you need to know in your times of weakness. I am weak, but he is strong. And Paul, in this passage in 2 Corinthians, reassures us that being consciously weak is really a good place to be. Wow that it's actually good to feel weak, that it's a spiritual state of mind to know that you are weak, that we should be intentionally conscious of our weakness because that is the place where God does his very best work. It says, my strength, his strength, is made perfect in weakness. His strength is perfect but not until I feel weak. Okay, so let's take a look at this passage. I have to confess, I always have liked the last two verses here, but I've hated the rest of it because I don't like it when Paul brags. And he does some of that. And it's not the most winsome thing that Paul does. He was human. 
But the backstory of this passage, and it's actually chapter 11 and chapter 12, is there were some guys who'd come along into the Corinthian church and tried to undermine Paul. They were telling everybody that he was a fake and he was a phony and that he didn't have any credentials, that he was ugly and that he was boring. And if you read really carefully chapters 11 and 12, you find all those things. They were just taking pot shots at him one after another. And he loved that church. He loved these people. They were his spiritual children that he had found and taught about Jesus. And he was just sick at heart that if he couldn't somehow convince those people that they could trust him, that he would lose all that work and all that glory that God had already, of what God had already done and accomplished. So Paul writes this passage from a profusely broken heart about what's going on in the church. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 18, he says, Since others boast about their human achievements... I guess I will too. And then he starts saying what he has done. And let me tell you, if you had a preacher that was up front today that was telling you this story and said, this is all the stuff that had happened to me, you would say, he's got to be lying. Okay? He said, I have worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I had... Five times, 39 lashes. Five different times, one short of the 40 that should have killed me. I've been three times beaten with rods, one time stoned, three times shipwreck. I've spent a day and a night on the open sea. I've constantly had to be on the move. I've never been able to put down roots. I've been in danger, danger from rivers, danger from bandits, dangers from my own countrymen, and from the Gentiles in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, and from false brothers. So that is what he says is his credentials of what he's already been through. And then he goes on, he says, I have labored, and I've toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. And I have that highlighted in my Bible because I go without sleep often. And so it's like, okay, I'm in good company Jesus stayed up all night praying, and now Paul says he was an insomniac too. So he's often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And beside all of these things, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. It's like to tip all of those other hard, awful things off, I'm just worried about you. I'm worried that these guys that are tearing me down will convince you not to listen to everything I've taught you. That's the background, the context of this when I'm weak, then I'm strong, that he has to tell us. And then in verse 29, he says, when you are weak, I am weak. And when you sin, I burn. I feel so tied to you that your bad choices just kill me. I struggle with this spiritual and emotional stress when you guys make bad choices. So please, listen to me. Don't listen to these other people who are tearing me down. And you just feel this emotional stress that poor Paul is feeling. 
And then in verse 30, it's like he inverts the categories. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. And here's the point. All these things that happened to Paul, and he never quit. Now, if somebody had stoned me, I think I would say that I needed to go to the bridge for a recovery therapy, and that maybe after five years or so of working in my garden, I would finally go back to work. He got up the next day and started again. You see this sense of I'm weak and I have crummy, awful things happening to me, but my eye is on the goal and I'm going to do what God is asking me to do, and I will not quit no matter how weak I am, no matter how hard it gets. And that's pretty amazing that in his weakness, he says, if I tell you how weak I am, then maybe you will think that you too can honor God, no matter what else is going on in your life, that you can honor God too. He turned the categories upside down, and he says, the very things that should have broken me, those are my credentials. The very places that I blew it, where I was just at my end of my, the limits of my own strength, the fact that I'm still doing what I'm doing, that is my credential before God. So guys, listen to me. Please don't listen to these other people. Well, you need to take Paul's case as an illustration because he was just this incredibly strong personality. Incredible personality. But he did have an ego. And as you read it, you, that ego pops up from time to time. And I've never really liked Paul's ego before. But one of the commentaries I was reading this week, it describes that Paul had been caught up to the third heaven, and he wasn't as good at receiving revelations as John was. John had these revelations, and he wrote a whole 22 chapters of this beautiful book that we all love so much. But Paul, when he was given a revelation, he didn't know what to do with it, and he'd really rather have arguments than visions. Therefore, when he saw this vision, he just clung to it, and he held on to it. He saw Jesus personally, and that's probably why he never gave up, is because he'd seen Jesus personally. Not just once, but four times Paul had visions. And I'm wondering if God did this because Paul really had a hard job and he needed the encouragement, or if maybe sometimes he had to keep Paul's ego in check. And so he had to come and say, cool down, slow down, take yourself out of the picture. This is about me, not you. Anyway... He'd had this vision, and whenever life became difficult, Paul could put himself back remembering that vision. And pride is pretty ugly. And pride happens even to good Christians, even Paul. So the downside was this vision could make him proud. So imagine being at a church board meeting when Paul is sitting at the table. And he's made a motion, and during that discussion, you're wondering if what he has in mind is really the wisest. 
So you raise your hand and you say, let's talk about that a little more. What will happen if, and what, should we really do it this way or could we maybe do it that way? And Paul just has this perfect one-liner comeback. He says, well, I remember when. Well, I remember when I went to heaven. How many times have you guys gone to heaven? I guess we'll do it my way. I'm the only one at this table who's been to heaven. Therefore, listen to me and do it the way I tell you. And if you don't think he was capable of that, Look at the lengths that God had to go to to get him to stop doing that. Because he said, because I was just always reveling in this wonderful vision I had, God said, okay, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to stop that kind of pride, and I'm going to give you what you need to stay humble before me and humble in relationship with the people that you're serving. So God saw what Paul needed, and he gave it to him. Paul himself explains why he needed this. Paul said, it was to keep me from becoming proud. He says it twice for emphasis. So what was this thorn? Now, when you think of a thorn, I think of my rose bushes, right? And they're little, and they prick you, but they don't kill you. And, and if you have to rate it on the pain scale, it might be a two, but it's not a nine or a ten, when you get pricked by a thorn. The Greek word translated thorn, and whoever did this, I don't know, is really scolops, which means a stake for impalement. His thorn was not a little thorn. His thorn was this stake, which capital punishment was they would put you belly down and drive it into you and then hang you there. The impalement, that's what that word meant. And that's what Paul used to describe the discipline that he had to have to keep him humble. Whoa, that's pretty serious business. Um, and I could describe that in greater detail. Some of the commentaries did, but I don't think you want to go there. And then people ask, well, what was this thorn? And the commentaries are all over the map. Some say that it was a messenger of Satan and that word messenger literally means angel, which would mean that Paul had a demon that God just let harass him. Maybe. That's what some of them say. Now, can you imagine if your, per if your personal demon could materialize and just harass and meddle with you all day, every day? Some of us feel like maybe we're there a little bit sometimes. So that's what some, some of them say. Others say that Paul, when he had his vision of Christ on the Damascus Road, it burned his eyes out, and that he was affected by the brightness of Jesus coming, and his eyes never recovered, and every time he had a vision, it only got worse. His eyesight was just really terrible, and that his eyes would run, and that he had all kinds of infections, and it was not only did it keep him from being able to see who he was preaching to, it kept him from writing his letters. And it was ugly and, and you know, a disfacement. And so every time he got into public, he'd have to kind of hide his eyes because they looked so bad. Okay, that's what some people say his thorn was. Other people say that his thorn was all those false teachers that are trying to tear him down. And all those Jewish enemies that had dogged his steps from really early in his ministry. Others 
say it was a depression that wouldn't lift. Why do you think that he didn't spell it out for us? Because we all have thorns. We all have stakes that we feel like we could be impaled upon. And every single one of us has a different one. And so he intentionally left it vague so we can apply this promise and this principle to whatever it is is our thorn, our stake, our impalement in life. That's the point. He wants us to realize that when we start getting high-headed, that God will put us back in our place. And I'm thankful that God is merciful and he does it in the gentlest way possible. But if I will not be humbled, he will do whatever it takes. And that's pretty scary. And Paul is our illustration of that. That he did something that was pretty painful to Paul in the process of keeping us, him humble. Humble. The other thing about this verse is that both God and Satan are involved because Paul knows that God could take it away. And both God and Satan are hoping for different outcomes in the plan for Paul. Satan wanted to stop Paul and just shut him off and keep him from preaching and teaching. God wanted to humble him so that that preaching and teaching could be effective. I believe with my whole heart that God does not waste any pain. Not one moment of pain does God waste. So if God gives Satan permission to afflict us, he has a plan of what he's going to do with it. So I keep saying, okay, God, it might be nice if you'd let me in on this plan. Then I would understand. I could be a little more cheerful about it. Paul begs God repeatedly to take that impaling stake of a thorn away. Three times, he says. You know what this tells me? God doesn't mind if we ask him to remove our pain. He likes it. He wants us talking to him. But we see from this passage that he doesn't always say, okay, I'll just take it away. You won't have to have any more of it. Sometimes he says, I'll just give you the strength to make it through. I'll give you the grace to honor me even in and through that pain. If he doesn't give us freedom from the struggle, he'll be with us in the struggle. We have to remember that that's what God did to his own son in Gethsemane. When Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me, God said, no, sorry, son. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. I think that's about as perfect of a prayer as any of us could ever pray. Not my will, but yours be done. And each time God answered Paul, my grace is all you need. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In God's hands, our weakness makes room for his strength. And then it's his power alone. Paul was strong. He was a strong character. And God said, I could use you better if you knew you were weak. Paul eventually came to the place where he understood his pain and God's plan in it. And he got to the place where he said, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses than my trip to heaven even. God's goal is our humility. He wants us humble. Then he can use us. Paul finishes this passage 
by saying that he was glad to boast about his weaknesses so the power of Christ could rest on him. And the Greek word behind may rest is magnificent. It's just this over-the-top beautiful idea. It's epikonose, which means literally to cover with a tent a tabernacle or the Shekinah glory. So what he's saying is in the same way that Jesus came to earth and made his dwelling and tabernacled with us when he came as a human being, that is the way God's power will come and dwell with us and cover us up like a tent and get us through our hard times. Wow. Back in the Old Testament, that Shekinah glory was the presence of God. And basically what Paul is saying here is when you struggle and when you are weak, God himself lives in you and covers you up with his glory. And, and he, he dwells in you. Well, I often pray that the Holy Spirit, who lives in you and he lives in me, would find absolutely nothing to impede his work that he would find this clear, open path to my heart and to your heart, and that he could do whatever he wanted. And that I would be so in sync with him that when he moved, I'd move. When he would whisper, I would say, okay, yes, Lord, I'm listening, tell me. I wish that I could be so completely surrender that I could move just every single step in harmony with him. And with that in mind, I want to finish by showing you a video. And even though I have seen this video several times, when I watched it last night, I just cried like a baby. As you watch this, think about the joy that you see on the son's face and the determination and the care you see on the face of the father. This is a visual image of how God's strength is made perfect in weakness. It's also a visual image of how God's going to get all of us weak and broken and sinful and messed up like we are to the finish line and home to heaven.
What can you say to that other than to say it's not about me getting it right? He's got me, and his strength is perfect. It's just beautiful. And what can we say in response to that but just to thank him? So that's what we're going to do. Thank him for making the weak strong. And, Lord, we know we are weak. We know that we cannot do anything that is of any spiritual worth in our own strength. Help us just to lean hard into you and to let you carry us when we just don't have anything of our own to give. And when you make us to lie down in green pastures, 
Make us willing to do that without complaint. And Lord, teach us what you have to teach us in our weak times. And help us just to be determined to honor you, no matter how strong or how weak we are. We love you, Lord. And we want to give you glory, even in our weakness. And we're trusting you to do that. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.